Our Father, please this day help me to explain uh, this, your word, uh, faithfully and clearly. Uh, please uh, bring your word home to our hearts in such a way that uh, we're genuinely changed by it. Uh, help us to come to you, uh, to listen to your word with real humility, uh, a willingness to hear it and trust it and obey it for the glory of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Anyway, I invite you to turn uh, to Paul's letter to Philemon in the New Testament. If you didn't find it uh, as uh, Beth was reading it, uh, if you've got a Bible, uh, it's tucked away in between Titus and Hebrews. Uh, if you've got one of these Bibles or it's handy uh, to you uh, in amongst the chairs there, uh, you can find it on page 835. Right? It's very small. It's probably only about half a page. Uh, page 835. Let me encourage you to have that open. Uh, and because some of you weren't here last week, and probably uh, the letter to Philemon is not that familiar to many of us, uh, let me uh, fill you in a, in a bit of backstory. The backstory of Philemon uh, is that a guy by the name of Onesimus uh, used to be a slave in Philemon's house. Uh, he ran away from Philemon, uh, and probably uh, he stole some of his stuff on the way out. Uh, certainly, he did him great harm. We're going to hear more about that next week. Uh, he ran away to Rome, uh, hoping that in the busyness of Rome, the crowds of Rome, uh, he'd just be able to disappear and be forgotten. Uh, but of course, God had other plans for young Onesimus. While he was in Rome, somehow he came into contact with Paul. Uh, Paul was a prisoner in Rome at the time. Uh, and uh, Paul shared the gospel with Onesimus, and wonderfully, he became a Christian. This great moment in his life, his life was radically transformed. Uh, he gave himself, instead of serving himself, but to serving Christ and to the work of his gospel, to caring for Paul uh, as he was in prison. In fact, if you look in verse 17, you'll see that uh, Onesimus became so useful for Paul uh, that Paul was even tempted to kind of keep this on the quiet and not say anything to Philemon about it, to keep uh, Onesimus for himself. But ultimately, uh, of course, Paul can't do that. He knows that that's the wrong thing to do. Uh, he knows that where, whether Onesimus ends up uh, staying with him in the long term or, or, or going back to be with Philemon, the most important thing is that this fractured relationship between Philemon and Onesimus is healed. I know that this kind of a ruptured relationship is just not on for two men who are now brothers in Christ, you see. That, that, that's what was burdening Paul uh, as he wrote this letter uh, to Philemon. And so it follows that the message uh, of this letter to Philemon is one of forgiveness and reconciliation. Uh, the forgiveness and reconciliation that is really only possible uh, through the work of Christ, through being uh, united with Christ by faith. Uh, so that, that's really the backstory for this letter. Uh, and last week we looked at verses 1 to 7. And we saw that uh, the, uh, one of the things that's really striking about this whole letter uh, is the real love and affection that exists uh, between the main characters in the letter. Uh, in particular, we saw last week that the love and affection that exists between Philemon uh, and, and Paul. And we discussed last week that the source of that affection is not that these men are all exactly the same, you see. It's not that hard to feel a love and affection for someone who's like you or who you like. Uh, but these guys are completely different. Very different backgrounds and interests and hobbies, and yet they've got this real love and affection for one another because what unites them is the fact that they've all come to faith in the Lord Jesus. This deep fellowship that they share, this partnership that they share uh, because of their faith in Christ. And today, as Paul begins to actually uh, unpack his appeal to Philemon, uh, we see just how transformative it is to be in this fellowship with Christ and his people. 
I think that's the, really the big idea for today. Just how transformative it is uh, to be brought into this, uh, this supernatural, this deep fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ and his people. And you can see in the outline of the Connect card there, as we look at Paul's appeal today, I really want us to see three main things. I want us to see the basis of Paul's appeal, the subject of his appeal, and the hope of his appeal. Uh, sorry, it would be helpful if you've got your Bible open or the passage uh, is on the inside of the Connect card there. Uh, let's look at the basis of Paul's appeal in verses 8 and 9. I'm going to read those verses. Uh, Therefore, Paul says, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Right, so, so Paul says, uh, even though I know and I'm an, I know I'm an apostle of Christ, right? I know I've got every right, Philemon, to order you to do what is right in this situation with Anesimus. Uh, I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love, Paul says. Right, Paul knows that he has this real authority over Philemon. He could choose to, to put that authority into gear, to make demands of Philemon, to issue orders, to, to uh, give commands. Every right to do that, Paul has. And as a faithful believer, of course, Philemon uh, would have really felt forced to do what Paul said, whether he wanted to or not. And now, of course, we've got to be clear just at this point that there's no such thing as an apostle today. Right? No particular person today has the authority that Paul has in this situation. Apostles like Paul were those who'd personally witnessed Jesus raised from the dead and those who'd personally been commissioned by Jesus uh, in that period of time after he'd been raised from the dead. No leader today fits into that category Right, today, uh, apostolic authority doesn't rest in any particular individual, right? not even the Pope, I might be so bold as to say. It doesn't rest in any particular individual, but in the words of the apostles that are written down in the Bible. That's where apostolic authority is found. Uh, so let me just put a word of caution out there. Right? Be very wary of any Christian leader who claims the title and authority of an apostle. Be cautious about that. Uh, but of course, Paul does have that authority. Paul is an apostle. And yet in verse 8, he chooses not to use his authority. Why? Because he wants his appeal to Philemon to be based on love, not power. He's not wanting to pull out the power card, you see. Uh, so he says to Philemon, verse 9, Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Right? Rather than making demands, Paul speaks to Philemon as one who's experienced the incredible love of Christ. And we saw last week in verse 5, if you've got the, the whole letter open there, you'll see in verse 5 that Philemon, he was kind of known for showing the love of Christ to all of God's holy people. So Paul says, Philemon, you know, brother, I appeal to you on the basis of love uh, that you might embrace Anesimus with love. And he says, please relate to me with love. Right? Look there, he says, I appeal to you as none other than Paul an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And now most historians think that Paul's probably about 60 years of age uh, when he writes this letter. Uh, so certainly by today's standards, he's not actually that old, is he? He's, uh, he calls himself an old man, but we, we could perhaps quibble with that. But uh, the, the fact is that Paul certainly feels old. And maybe you can't blame him after all the shipwrecks and stonings and imprisonments. 
But after everything he experienced, Paul says to Philemon, on the, base, on the basis of your love for me, brother, right? an old man, do an old guy a favor, he's basically saying. A prisoner of Christ Jesus, please receive Anesimus with love. He's our friendly projector. Now, so to some extent, this whole thing about Paul appealing on the basis of love rather than power uh, raises the whole question of, is it wrong to do things if I just feel that it's my duty as a Christian? If I sort of feel forced to do it or, or compelled to do it? So I just want to say that duty absolutely has an important place in the Christian life. Right? There's nothing wrong with doing something in the Christian life simply because you know it's your duty as a Christian. Uh, of course, if you only ever do things out of duty, whether it be reading your Bible or, or perhaps sharing your faith or, or, or coming to church, uh, it won't be long before you're not motivated to do those things. Uh, a far more powerful and kind of sustainable motivation for living the Christian life is love, right? Love for the Lord Jesus, love for his people. So Paul says to Philemon, please do this. Please forgive Anesimus, be reconciled to Anesimus, not just because I've told you to, but because of your love for Christ and for me and for your brother Anesimus. Paul's appeal is on the basis of love. Now really, at this point, I could apply this uh, to anyone who's in a position of authority. But I think this is a useful principle, whether it be in the workplace or in particular in the church. We want to uh, seek to motivate people and appeal to people uh, on the basis of love, not just because we've got a position of authority over them. Uh, but I guess I wanted to apply it primarily to myself, because I reckon as a fairly uh, young pastor, this is something I've had to learn, and uh, at least I, I'm trying to learn it. You know, Maybe it's a work in progress. Some of you might think that. It's not that I think I'm an apostle, like I'm very clear that I'm not an apostle, but there is a sense in which as a pastor of this church, I have some authority. I've been entrusted with some authority, and I could easily uh, seek to use that authority to appeal to you, to try and motivate you uh, through a sense of fear and duty, rather than through a sense of love and delight. I know I've got to be careful of that. Why not to be that pastor who seeks to drive his church along by making constant demands and raising the bar of expectation all the time and, and placing uh, incredible burdens on his people? Maybe some of you have felt that. I don't know, I'm sorry. And what I want to do, what the elders want to do, what Adam wants to do in joining the pastoral team here uh, is that we want all of our hearts to be so captured by the love of Christ that we together would give ourselves to Christ and to his great gospel cause in the world out of our love for him, our de a delight in him, our desire to see others come to delight in him. That's what we want to do. We want our appeals, our, our motivation to be on the basis of love. So in verses 10 to 12, Paul, uh, we come to what I've called uh, the subject of Paul's appeal. That is, uh, who is it that Paul's appeal is actually about? Now, I've given you the backstory, so maybe you know, uh, it's about Anesimus. But it's interesting, it's not until verse 10 that Paul actually mentions that. Look there in verse 10, he says, I appeal to you for my son, Anesimus. Uh, we, we don't really know why Paul doesn't mention Anesimus until now. Maybe it's because he knows uh, that um, 
And maybe, sorry, it's because he doesn't want his appeal to kind of be scuttled before he's even given it, you see. I think we have to remember that Philemon was really quite a prominent member in the community of Colossae where he lived. Think about uh, his life circumstances. Uh, He was obviously wealthy uh, because he owned his own home, a home that was large enough to have a whole church meeting in it. Well, we know that from the very start of the letter. And he had several slaves, right? It was harm to him to lose Onesimus, but he must have had other slaves as well. So this, this was a man of real significance. So it was very embarrassing for him when this public incident happened, that one of his slaves not only ran away, but on the way out took some of his stuff and did great harm to him. You can imagine the talk around town. You know, Philemon can't even keep his own slaves in order. What's going on over there at his place? So you can imagine that as Philemon is eager to get his hands onto Onesimus, but not so much to give him an embrace, as Paul's urging, uh, but perhaps more so to punish him. Uh, so Paul uh, kind of wisely knows that. He's got his pastoral radar on. Uh, and so he takes a little while uh, to fully get to the subject of Onesimus. Uh, having said that, it would have been pretty obvious to Philemon that this was about Onesimus. Because Onesimus was right there. Right there in the room. This is the incredible thing. Even though he hasn't mentioned him there, you might remember, we looked at the book of Colossians last year, but in Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 to 9, if you're a quick Bible flicker, you can flick over to Colossians. Colossians 4, verses 7 to 9. This is what Paul says. Uh, He says, Tychicus, from verse 7, Tychicus will tell you all the news about uh, me. He's a dear brother, a fellow minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances uh, and that he may encourage you in your hearts. Uh, But who's coming with Tychicus? He's coming, verse 9, with Onesimus. Our faithful and dear brother who is one of you, they will tell you everything that is happening here. So Paul gives both Tychicus and Onesimus the responsibility of delivering his letter to the the whole church in Colossae. We looked at that last year. Uh, But also this personal letter delivered to Philemon. Uh, But we know from the start of Philemon that this personal letter to Philemon is to be read uh, to the whole church. Paul assumes that that's what's going to happen because he wants the whole church to learn things from this situation between Philemon uh, and Onesimus. Uh, So you can imagine that Onesimus rocks up at a church after not being there for quite some time. Philemon, uh, before he'd even read the letter, uh, would have had a pretty good idea of what was going on. Uh, Unless, of course, uh, I was thinking about this during the week, uh, but maybe uh, Onesimus on the way into Colossae sort of said to Tychicus, you know, haven't seen Philemon for a while. We didn't exactly end on good terms. Perhaps, Tychicus, you go in with the letter. Let's see how he responds, and I'll just wait up the street a little bit, and uh, maybe I'll sidle in later on, you know. But uh, I don't think that's what happened. Most likely, as Philemon's reading the letter, Onesimus, his now brother in Christ, is standing right there. And I say brother in Christ because of verse 10. As Philemon reads this letter, he's confronted with the fact that Onesimus has indeed become a Christian. Paul says he's become his son. He's become my son. And now in saying that, Paul's not saying that, that, that somehow he's managed to make Onesimus become a Christian. Right? He's produced Onesimus, like parents might be able to produce a son. 
Uh, Paul, Paul's very clear that no human being can make someone become a Christian. If that were the case, many of us here have our dear loved ones, family, friends who are not currently Christians. Uh, so if this was the case, we could just pressure them and cajole them and, and basically force them to become Christians. Uh, but we know that we can't do that, can we? In fact, sometimes if we take that route, it doesn't go that well, does it? We know that people like Anesimus become Christians, right? They become children of God. Not because of something we do, but because of something God does. Right? They have to be born again by God's Spirit. And just before Christmas, uh, we uh, did look at this, right? In John chapter 1, verse 13, uh, we saw that these children who were born again by God's Spirit, if you want to open up John 1, uh, verse 13, uh, you'll see there that these children who are born again by God's Spirit uh, are not born of natural descent. Uh, which is to say, you're not a child of God uh, simply because uh, of the physical family you're born into. Right? You're your descendants. Right? And these children, you'll see the next phrase there, they're not born of human decision, which is literally uh, not born of the will of the flesh. Now, I'm about to give you a slightly, perhaps uncomfortable uh, mental image uh, but what John's saying here is that you don't become a child of God because of the sexual desires of your parents. Right? He's trying to draw, draw a distinction, right? You might have become their child in that way, right, through their sexual fleshly desires, but you don't become God's child in that way. And so it follows, John 1.13, that uh, children of God aren't born of a husband's will. No uh, person, a husband, a wife, or any person can kind of force someone to become a Christian, to can make someone a child of God. So why is it that Paul says that Anesimus became his son? What's his role in all this? If it's God who makes people become Christians? Well, he says that, but because he knows that, that in the case of Anesimus, God wonderfully used him. What a wonderful thing. He's there sharing the gospel with Anesimus, and God worked through Paul and his words by the power of his spirit, such that Anesimus was born again before his very eyes. How wonderful. So in that sense, Paul is like a bit like Anesimus' spiritual father in the faith. A bit like some of us here have the joy of being biological fathers, right? We didn't kind of give birth to our kids, right? Our wives are very clear on that. But we were right there when it happened. Well, we can't take much credit for it, but we were right there. Right? Paul was right there. God he used him wonderfully in this moment when Anesimus was born again. And in verse 11, we see that because Anesimus has been born again, uh, his life has been really incredibly transformed. Look there in verse 11. Uh, back to Philemon, one, uh, verse 11. Uh, Paul says, uh, Formerly Anesimus was useless to you, uh, but now he has become useful both to you uh, and to me. You see, Philemon's reading this letter in a church gathering, perhaps, perhaps one like this. And Paul wants Philemon to know that the Anesimus that stands before him, right there in the church, is not the same Anesimus who ran away from him and stole his stuff. Right? This is a new Anesimus. And a Anesimus who's no longer useless, but is useful. Now, some of you might have a footnote there in your Bible, but this is really a pun here. Right? Paul's playing with words because the name Anesimus actually means useful. Right? So you, perhaps you can uh, imagine Philemon, you know, a few years previously in his house with Appia, kind of like, oh, where's that slave Anesimus? 
you know, he might be called useful, but he can't do, he's, he's useless. He can't get anything done around here. Right? That's the kind of context for what's going on here. And of course, his usefulness kind of came to a head when he ran away. The, the epitome of a useless slave. And so, God, and so Paul says, God has made Anesimus, who was once useless, to be useful. But Anesimus is actually living up to his name. And in a spiritual sense, this is the story of every single person who becomes a Christian. Uh, apart from Christ, uh, spiritually speaking, uh, all of us were once spiritually useless. Think about the ways that the Bible describes us before we become united with Christ. Uh, we were blind, blind to who Christ was, deaf to uh, what Christ had done for us. Our minds, the Bible says, are darkened to God's truth. Our hearts were hard and cold and, and really indifferent to the God who made us. Our wills were stubborn and proud and, and resisting to, to live God's way and, and surrender our lives to Him. In fact, the Bible says, apart from knowing Christ, we were once dead in our sins. Dead. I mean, that's relatively useless, you see. Apart from Christ, you and I were once completely useless, but now in Christ, God has made us alive. He's given us new life. We're new creations in Christ by the power of His Spirit, and now we are useful. Useful because God has opened our eyes to see who Christ is. Because He's opened our ears to, to hear and, and savour the wonderful news of what God has done in Christ. Uh, enlightened our minds so we can actually understand and even delight in God's truth. Softened our hearts so we can love God as He deserves. And uh, He's really broken our stubborn wills. Uh, so we can live in ways that please Him. Uh, apart from Christ, all of us were once useless before God. But now in Christ, God has made us useful. And I just want to dwell on that even a little bit more because I think it's this kind of radical transformation that Christianity promises uh, that should uh, assure us that there are no hopeless cases when it comes to Christianity. In fact, really, there are only two reasons why anyone here would be apart from Christ and not experience this kind of radical transformation. Uh, the first reason uh, is that you sit here today and you honestly think you're too good for Christ. Uh, you probably wouldn't say it quite like that. Uh, but the thought's popping into your mind, what do you mean I'm useless apart from Christ? How dare you say that about me? I'm fine. I don't need Jesus. I've got my life together. And so in the end, you're kept apart from Christ and this, this wonderful transformation that he promises you uh, because you think you're too good for him. Your pride gets in the way. Uh, of course, others here don't think they're too good for Christ. You, you, you think you're too bad for Christ. And not so much full of pride, but full of despair. Saying to yourself, well, sure, like God might be able to do something for someone like Anesimus. But I'm a real mess. Like you don't even know how messed up my life is. I really am a lost cause. But in Christ, that there are no lost causes, no hopeless cases. 
And in Christ's death on the cross, God deals with, with both those things, uh, both the fullness of our pride and our despair, uh, that would keep otherwise keep us apart from Christ. I mean, he deals with, with our pride. How does Christ's death on the cross deal with our pride? Well, seriously, can you contemplate the fact that the glorious Son of God had to die for your sins on the cross? Right There, there was no other way to deal with your sins that the Son of God had to die for your sins. Oh, I don't think you can really contemplate that or, or get that and still be full of pride. We're just not that good, you see. We might be better than the next person or, or our neighbor across the road, but the Son of God still had to die for us. We're so sinful that he had to die for us. But on the other hand, uh, he, we're so loved that he was willing to die for us. Isn't that true? The glorious Son of God didn't just die for you because he had to, but because he wanted to. He willingly laid down his life for you, for your sins. So how can you be full of despair when you're loved by the Son of God like that? So despite their very different backgrounds, Paul and Philemon and Onesimus are really united by this deep spiritual transformation that they've all experienced. Even though Paul's zooming in on Onesimus here, all of them were once useless before God. But now in Christ, God has made them useful. And it's worth remembering that that is what unites us as a church. I know we don't have all the demographics covered in our church, but there are some significant differences. What is it that unites the uni student and the young worker? What unites the single person and the couple with kids? The, the middle class person or the upper middle class person and the lower class person? What unites the, the progressive lefty political person and the conservative righty person? What, what, what is it that unites us? It's not clearly the fact that we're all exactly the same in every way. If we were dependent on that, we'd be divided all over the place. What unites us is the fact that all of us were once useless apart from Christ, but now in Christ, God has made us useful. That's what has to bind us together. This deep spiritual fellowship with Christ and his people that has transformed our lives. And it's given us this community of real love, which is why Paul can say in verse 12, I'm sending Anesimus, who is my very heart, back to you. And I think we don't really get the, the, how graphic this word heart is. Uh, actually, uh, it's the word for bowels. Or intestines. I think old tra older translations of the Bible, uh, like the King James Version, uh, used to talk about bowels of compassion. Which was a bit more graphic, but perhaps, you know, gave a few laughs to young kids in churches back in, you know, looking for the word bowel everywhere in their Bibles. But anyway, the, the point is, like, that's the kind of deep love and compassion that Paul experiences for Anesimus. And really, this word heart uh, ties together the, the whole letter of Philemon. It's mentioned in the three main sections that we're looking over these three weeks. As you remember, in verse 7, uh, Paul said that Philemon refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Right? This deep, kind of, the word splankba. Right? It's a good word, it's a solid word, isn't it? Uh, Philemon was known for refreshing the splankmas of the Lord's people. Uh, here he says, uh, Paul says that uh, Anesimus is his very heart. 
Right, and in verse 20, he's got to ask for the lemur to, uh, to refresh his heart. Right, this, this is what Christianity is about, you see. When you become a Christian, you're not just following Jesus by yourself. You're not joining some religious club. You're not becoming a member of an organization. You're being brought into this deep and powerful and, and, and transformative fellowship with Christ and his people. It's real. A deep spiritual connection. And this fellowship is so tight. If you read the New Testament, you know, it's so tight that, that your joy is my joy, you see. That's how connected we are. One part of the body of Christ suffers, the whole body suffers. We're in it together. Or here, that, uh, that uh, your heart is my heart. We're deeply connected. I was seeing the basis of Paul's appeal, the subject of his appeal, that's Anesimus, uh, verses 13 to 16. Uh, we start to see what he hopes is going to come from his appeal. Uh, verse 13, we've touched on this. Uh, Paul says, I would have liked to keep Anesimus with me uh, so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. Uh, once again, this is the kind of deep connection. Uh, in, in this fellowship of Christ. Because Paul's saying, if Anesimus had have stayed with me, Philemon, he would have done for me what you would have done. You see, Philemon's known for refreshing the hearts of the Lord's people, and that's exactly what Anesimus was doing. And then Paul says, I would have loved to keep him here. He was being just like you. And yet in verse, verse 14, Paul says, but I, I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that any favour you do would not seem forced, uh, but would be voluntary. You see, the flow of the passage, right, in verse 8, Paul says, I've got this authority, but I'm not going to use it. I'm going to lay that down. And now here in verse 14, he says, oh, I've got these preferences. I'd much prefer that Anisimus stayed here with me. But I'm going uh, to lay down my preferences, right? Because if anything is going to happen uh, to do with Anesimus, like Anesimus coming back to be with Paul, uh, Paul wants Philemon to be in on that. Why? Because the priority is keeping the family strong. Doing whatever it takes to, to keep these relationships together, to preserve the unity of God's people. Not just doing whatever Paul wants, but preserving the unity of God's people, you see. We could take, I mean, I don't have time to go there, right? But how often is it this unity amongst us caused by us placing our interests before uh, the interests of others? Right? Paul doesn't want to jeopardize their fellowship in Christ. He wants Philemon to have the freedom to voluntarily do what is good rather than feeling forced to do what is good. I say do what is good uh, rather than do a favour because I actually think that our translation, if I can be so bold, uh, is not that helpful uh, in this verse. I think uh, the word there should be good rather than Paul's not talking about doing a favour. He says do what is good. And I think that helps us to see the connection back with verse 6. So I said last week that verse 6 is really the key verse for this whole letter. And back in verse 6, if you can uh, cast your eyes back there, Paul prayed uh, that God would deepen Philemon's understanding of every good thing that all of them share in Christ. Every good thing, you see. And so now Paul's saying, Philemon, I know you've experienced all this goodness in Christ. 
all this goodness, abundant goodness. Uh, so I appeal, appeal to you to allow that goodness to kind of overflow in this particular situation. In how you uh, treat me and Onesimus. Uh, so in verse 15, uh, Paul starts to wrap up this part of his appeal. We'll look at the rest next week. Uh, he says, Perhaps the reason Onesimus was separated from you for a little while uh, was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but, but really better than a slave. As a dear brother. We've really got to kind of put ourselves in Philemon's shoes. These are, these are pretty amazing circumstances, aren't they? The slave that just did a runner is now standing before him in a, in a public gathering of God's people. He's reading this letter uh, where he's being appealed to to embrace this runaway slave as his brother in Christ. Uh, those circumstances are so bizarre that it leads Paul to say, well... Maybe you've got to see God's hand at work in this, Philemon. Or you've got to see that this is a sign of God's providence, God's, God's rule over all things. Well, what other way could you see it? It's just, it's just crazy otherwise. Right, Paul's not denying that Anesimus was a, a rebellious and useless slave, a slave who did Philemon much harm. But he's saying, well, maybe all that was part of God's plan. Maybe it was so Anesimus could come to know Christ and return to Philemon, uh, not just as his slave, but as his dear brother in Christ. Welcome back, kids. Maybe I have to preach a bit long. Uh, implicit in what Paul's saying here is that, like, be encouraged by this. Uh, that our life, uh, walking, uh, trusting in Jesus, uh, in our life, there are no accidents. Right? Your life isn't just the sum total of a series of random coincidences. Right? All our steps, even the rebellious ones, are ordered by our sovereign God, our God who works all things for the salvation of his people and the glory of his name. And the wonderful thing is that in his infinite wisdom, our God, hello, uh, in his infinite wisdom, our God somehow knew that even though Anesimus was a slave in a home where the gospel was everywhere, Right, this house, everyone in the house believed in Jesus, had been transformed by the gospel, uh, and yet God knew that Anesimus had to run away to Rome to become a Christian. How, I mean, in human terms, no one would have thought that was the plan. Keep Anesimus in that house. That's where the gospel is, you see. But God knew he had to go to Rome. And maybe that's an encouragement for you. If you have a son or daughter, perhaps, who's run away from you, and you think that in distancing themselves from you and the gospel that's in your home, that they're actually running away from God. Uh, but maybe the reason they've been separated from you for a little while is that you might have them back forever. Right? Not just as your biological son, right? but as a fellow child of God. Or maybe you are the son or daughter who's sitting here today and you have run away from Christian parents thinking that somehow you can run away from God. And yet here you are in church, perhaps a long way from home. And maybe like Paul perhaps said to Anesimus, the time's come to stop running away from God. You know, you can imagine Paul saying that. Yeah, Anesimus, you're not just running away from Philemon. You're running away from the God who made you. Let's talk about that. Put your trust in Christ. 
Uh, so in many ways, this passage shows us uh, two different aspects of how we can be transformed uh, when we're united with Christ, when we're in Christ. Right? Verses 10 to 12, in summary, show us uh, the radical transformation that happens in our lives as individuals. You see, because all of us were once useless uh, before God, but now in Christ, uh, we are useful. Radical transformation. Uh, but then verses 13 to 16 show us that we're not in Christ by ourselves. We're united to Christ with all our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so like Philemon, God calls you. Right? He calls you to live out the transformation that you have experienced in Christ uh, in the community of Christ, with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's in this church, in this community, where you get to put on display your newfound usefulness in Christ. You see, God has made you useful, so show us. That's what Paul's saying to Philemon. God has made you useful in Christ. So show us your usefulness by forgiving your brother Onesimus and by being reconciled to him. And God would say the same. We show our usefulness in Christ as we love one another because in Christ we have been loved. We forgive one another because in Christ we know God's forgiveness. We be gracious to one another. Not taking jabs at one another, not condemning one another, not assuming the worst of one another. We be gracious to one another because in Christ we've experienced God's amazing grace. And we seek to be reconciled with one another because in Christ we know that we've been reconciled not just to God, it's not just about us and God. We've been reconciled to his people. So we work hard on these relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, let me pray. We're all here. We're going to sing and then share in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, we do uh, thank you for this, your word, uh, Paul's letter to Philemon. Uh, we pray that you would refresh our hearts in the radical transformation that we've experienced in Christ as individuals, uh, that though we were once uh, spiritually useless, you have made us useful. And we pray, Father, that we would uh, think carefully about how we can put on display that usefulness uh, as we live with our brothers and sisters in Christ in this church as we seek to love one another and be patient with one another and be compassionate and, and forgive and be reconciled and, and do all that tough, nitty-gritty work of putting into practice uh, our radical transformation in Christ. Uh, for his glory we pray. Amen.